you know, I remember this one woman I talked to, she was talking about how America feels to her. And she says, I feel like I'm on the bottom of a pit and there's a ladder. And every time I put my foot on a rung of the ladder, the rung collapses under my feet. And that's like another school shooting or another thing that goes wrong, another thing. And I feel utterly helpless. I want to get out, but I can't. And the government's not facilitating that. You know, I think that those things are really important. You know, making Americans a hero, giving Americans a sense of agency and momentum, recognizing that Americans are drowning, and then uh, just delivering, please, needs to happen. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Gretchen Barton. Gretchen is the research director for Future Majority, which is a data-driven strategy center focused on brand storytelling and policy to advise progressive leaders as they think about issues, campaigning, and governing. Gretchen has led research and served as a behavioral science strategist for political organizations and campaigns, including Next Gen America, New Moral Majority, The Lincoln Project, Ideas 42, Way to Win, working on uncovering key messaging insights to turn out the youth vote, reveal voters' deepest hopes and dreams for presidential campaigns, and unearthing insights in real time to key organizers in the buildup to the 2020 election. Gretchen has a really interesting story of how she moved politically to the progressive side and came to the work she is now doing. And if you don't know what metaphor elicitation is, you should listen. So after Word from our sponsor, my interview with Gretchen Barton at Future Majority. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Gretchen. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Gretchen Barton. I'm the research director at Future Majority and Principal at Worthy Strategy Group. I grew up in upstate New York, two brothers, grew up evangelical, hardcore Republican, uh, did the whole evangelical thing for a while, had a revival at Cornell, changed perspectives in a big way after college. And now I do research to support the Democrats and make the world a better place. What a stretch from growing up evangelical and Republican to research for the left. I want to explore that path a little bit. So Cornell, what did you study there? Uh, I studied communications and planning campaigns. What does planning campaigns mean? My maiden name was actually Paula. So I kind of felt like I was destined to be George Stephanopoulos and meet him someday and be like, hey, did you know that we're 
kind of related, maybe. <laughs> it was all about that. But the, the turn that it went for me at Cornell was um, I had this amazing professor, Dr. Shelley Campo, and she was all about using your brain to help people. And she would always say to us, look, if you're not using what you've learned here to help the world, I don't know what the hell you're doing here. And we would all go and volunteer at nonprofits and in the community and use psychology and communications to, you know, plan. What did she teach? She taught persuasion and she taught uh, communication theory. And she was great. I mean, I was, she took me under her wing, which she didn't have to, and uh, really was an incredible mentor to me and, and brought out the best in me. And, you know, I'll always be grateful to her. When you think back about like what you learned from her, what sticks in your mind? Well, the thing that's most memorable to me um, is that you have to be conscious of your objective when you're persuading somebody and you, you have to be thoughtful about the process of it. You have to you know, think about your target, think about what you say. Um, the thing actually that most comes to mind um, is um, I had asked her to be my um, advisor on my, my thesis and uh, I took her out for ice cream to do that because I, I had a coupon. I had a, an extra coupon and I called her up and I was like, Dr. Campo, I have this coupon for a free ice cream cone. You want to come to ice cream with me? And she was just like, first of all, that was lousy persuasion. <laughs> 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 she was like, I'll only come if you pay for my ice cream cone. And I was like, oh my God, she was great. She but did it work? Oh yeah. I mean, oh, so, so maybe it, it was good persuasion. You know, I'm known for my baked goods and, uh, you know, cajoling the world along with sugar, right? <laughs> I mean, people like that make a difference, right? In your trajectory. Huge. Yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, it's funny because I, I mean, I was president of university at Cornell. I mean, I had a, a revival for the Christian community at Cornell and I was, I mean, I was in it to win it and very Republican, hated Hillary Clinton because that, that's what I grew up with, which feels really embarrassing to say, but that's, that's the truth. And I remember I was just talking to her about a paper and she was just like, you know, Gretchen, this is kind of funny. You just seem kind of nice and you're about like making the world a better place and you just don't seem like a Republican. I just, it's just kind of funny, you know, just this like incongruency. I just noticed it, you know, but like it was like, one of those seeds that just like, <laughs> grew into this different life for me. Can you trace that a little bit? What were the steps? What were the other seeds? Well, you know, as a kid, I grew up in a community with a lot of Holocaust survivors. And one of the things that I had embedded in me from, you know, they would come into our school and talk about their experiences. And I remember as a young evangelical, you know, I would go to the church library, read about Corrie ten Boom, uh, who was this woman who like, you know, saved Jewish people and like hid them away. And I remember thinking, okay, this is what being a Christian is about. This is what being an evangelical is about. It's about like protecting the Jewish people and like in a real way. I mean, I mean, honestly, I was like, this is it. And, but it wasn't just about protecting Jewish people. It was about protecting the underdog and always looking out for people and making sure that the bad things stopped, making the bad things stop. And it, it became the bent of my life. That was, that was the, the truest expression of, of my, my faith to, to help the underdog. And when I got to college, I was I was doing that hardcore. I mean, I we had moved a lot. I became even more ardently into the evangelical community. But one thing had happened. My uncle, uh, he was gay. He actually um, he he died. He died of of AIDS, and he was rejected uh, by my family. We weren't allowed to go to his funeral. It was really painful. 
And it was a moment that led to a number of other moments. I, I was holding the, the revival and I was hanging out with this gay Christian community. This sounds really embarrassing, but it was like, you know, early 2000s when I was in college. And it was a very big deal for like Christian community to meet with gay people. Like it was a very big deal. Like, let's go talk to gay people, see what they have to say. Like, let's just, let's just chat, you know? And I remember sitting across the table from a guy that was like, I'm gay and I'm also Christian. And I was like falling out of my chair, like, what? How? How is this possible? I mean, I was in a different world, you know, of belief and meaning. But we kept on talking and it was interesting. When it came time for this revival, I invited that crew to go to the revival and it got blowback in the community. It got blowback from the larger community, which was very sad and it shouldn't have ever happened, but it did. And that was like another moment for me where it was like, okay, I don't like this. I didn't have the words for it, but I, it felt the opposite of loving and it felt the opposite of right. And so that was a thing. And then, then George Bush and the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that was something that was preached from the pulpit, you know, a righteous, holy war. And I really was like taking my notes and like, okay, right, this is what we do. And when it turned out that that was not right, I mean, this feels probably feels really naive to hear from your perspective, maybe, but in my world, it was just like, what? And so then there was this moment, it was like, wait a second, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel loving. This doesn't feel right. And this was just a lie all of these things that I base my life on feel wrong, but also it's terrifying to step away because maybe I'll go to hell. And also I'm going to lose everybody I know, you know? And so it was this decision to step away. And I remember, I literally remember praying in my boyfriend's car, no next boyfriend, but I was in my boyfriend's car and I was going, God, if I, if I, uh, step away. Uh, please just know that it's done with the best of intentions, just in case you think maybe I'll die and like go to hell. Like I was just trying to figure this out because George Bush lied. This feels really naive, but I, I did. And then, and then I, and then I stepped away and, and, you know, it happened as I thought it would. Like I lost a lot of people. I had to completely build a new community. I remember crying a lot because everything that I believed to be true everything I had to re-examine. And it was terrifying. I mean, I remember thinking the only thing that I know is true is gravity. That's it. That's it. So, yeah. I mean, that strikes me as fairly rare and very brave to allow yourself to change such fundamental core values and beliefs. I was thinking about my college girlfriend who grew up in a Catholic family and who at 13 had her doubts and sort of challenged God for a sign and didn't get one and then walked away, walked away from it. That's a totally different thing. But most people stay in their comfort zone or they transition fairly slowly and maybe not as dramatically from like one end of the spectrum to the other, right? Something, but this is, I mean, this is quite a, it's quite a move for you. How long did it take to feel comfortable in the new world you created or do you? Oh gosh. Well, you know, the first year I moved in as a, a, a tenant 
with two amazing women, uh, Mary and Suzanne, a lesbian couple, just for reference. They were amazing. We made brunch and took tap dance classes together and went to protests and it was great. Um, You know, it was a slow process. I mean, I would say it was more than several years. I mean, the first year was agony. I was not comfortable in my skin. I didn't know what the hell. And it really, you know, two, three, four, five years before I started to feel like, okay. And, and oftentimes it felt like, you know, I don't want to make light. It wasn't like coming out like, right. I'm straight. And, but in a way it was coming out to. That was actually in my mind when you were talking about it, I was thinking it's kind of like coming out as liberal Yeah. in a community that was prejudiced against liberals. When I told my mom that, uh, you know, I was, you know, my, my, my boyfriend was moving in with me. She, you know, she was like, I you failed as a mother, but like, you know, because there were certain principles and standards of things that I ought to do and things that I wasn't doing. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, yeah, you came out as a different person and then you would reveal things and then, you know, hold back or whatever. You try to figure out like, you know, where you're home, where, where, where's home for anybody. And I think for, for that reason, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, as a researcher, I just, I love studying people and how they think and how they change or how they stay the same. We're doing this study right now um, on how you know it's true. And I'm talking to people who have converted from one major life view to another or they've stayed the same. And my God, it's blowing my mind how people kind of navigate what truth is, especially in the era of misinformation that we see. It's blowing my mind, but I'm hoping that we get some really useful stuff out of it um, that can help, you know, build resiliency in the American public because, oh my God. <laughs> it's a trying time for, for the truth. It is. It is really, really trying. So I've looked at your LinkedIn and you have a, have a very varied and various path through jobs to uh, what you do now. Could you sort of trace uh, just like what the heck was I doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was really trying to find myself and do good. And going back to that thing that I grew up with, right? Like make the bad things stop and try to, you know, look out for the underdog. I was trying to explore that and build that a capability within myself. So Cornell, I studied hazing. I was employed by the university to figure out how to stop it at the university. So I built a campaign. Thank you, degree, (laughs) building campaigns. I built a campaign on how to stop hazing. Did that for a while. Then I moved to New York. Um, I had a million jobs. I worked as a researcher for a lot of nonprofits, which was fascinating um, because I wanted to use that part of my brain and I felt like that was helpful. I worked as an actress a little bit, which probably didn't show up on my LinkedIn, but I did. It had been a dream of mine to do that for a while. And given the rigid upbringing that I had, I, it was a way of, there was like a film company as part of it, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Made some, made some movies, which was good. Our dog, by the way, is uh, in Sarah Silverman's movie. I smile back. That's our dog, Meg. So shout out to Maggie. Um, yeah, I did that. I worked in prisons for a little bit. Um, 
with uh, with this uh, AIDS education company. I was really interested in you know public health and politics, but I couldn't figure out how to work in the political space. So I just did a lot of public health. It was kind of do good kind of stuff, and so I did AIDS education in prisons. And I worked with a lot of hospitals in New York, um, trying to educate doctors to to be nicer to their patients and to actually listen. And I think for me, all of that was helping me become the kind of person that could do deep listening, that could be really present and could examine where things break down, how problems arise in you know larger social situations and, and what to do to, to fix them. I guess going through the rest of it, I worked for like a a consulting group that did like a lot of psychological techniques to help people sell more products, which I didn't care about the products, but the psychological techniques to persuade people was interesting to me. And then I did a deep research that really helped me get into more of the political space. What was that deep research that helped you get into the political space? So I started doing metaphor licitation, and it's something that's used widely in corporate America. It started at Harvard about 20 years ago. And what it does is is it uses metaphorical imagery to access the unconscious mind of participants to to go deeper than you normally would. You know, that expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's, that's it. And the pictures are just the springboard. So what you do is you ask people to bring in metaphorical images that describe their thoughts and feelings about a particular thing. You know, whether it's like, baseball or Biden, whatever, people bring in images. And then you talk about it. You say, tell me why you picked this picture. How does it relate to that? Why does it matter to you? What's the outcome of that? And you go all through the different psychological underpinnings of those thoughts and feelings. You know, why did you pick this picture of a mouse to represent Biden? What does that mean? What does it say about him? What does that say about you? What does it say about society? How could this happen? What's the impact of that? And you really explore the full the 360 degree view of, of how they how they see the world and, and not just how, but why. One of the things that I had seen, you know, 2016 happened. I think we were all still traumatized by that, but 2016 happened. And I remember getting introduced to the technique shortly thereafter and thinking, oh my God, I think that this could really help. Because what I saw when I looked at the research community for the Dems was I saw a lot of polls. I saw a lot of focus groups. And that was it. That was all I was aware of. But it worried me because there's only so much that you can get from a poll or a survey or focus group. You know, you don't give people enough time to share their thoughts. You don't ask all the questions that you would want to ask. People are inhibited. People, um, you know, aren't as thoughtful as they can be. They don't bring in other things that give them the ability to share their full meaning. And this, this, this did. This gave the why behind the what, and it made me feel like, oh my God, this needs to happen. In the political space, in the policy space, we can solve these tough social problems, these tough political problems that we've really struggled with if we not only ask the right questions, but ask them in the right way. So that became a a little bit of a flame um, lit in me. (laughs) Here's my crappy metaphor, but yeah. (laughs) Help me make that more concrete. I can imagine a focus group. I think I've uh, seen them filmed. I've, I've certainly read a lot of polls or seen other people interpreting them. I've never seen this practice of metaphorical imagery. Give me an example of something somebody brought in, something they said as a result, what you learned because of that. 
help me understand this. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So let me think of a good, a good one. Ah, okay. So one of the things um, that I did earlier this year was studying the Democratic Party and studying the Republican Party and perceptions of it. You know, people brought in all kinds of different pictures of different things. Uh, one participant brought in a picture of snails in a race, I guess. That, that sounds really obscure. But anyway, it was a snail racing as much as a snail can race. Who has a snail racing? Uh. <laughs> well, the Democratic Party does. Because the conversation was, you know, tell me about this picture. Well, this is a snail. This represents, this represents the Democratic Party. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, you see these snails. They're trying to get across the finish line but they can never do it. They're slow. They're procedural. They're slimy. There's some issues there. And then you say, okay, well, you know, tell me more about this. Let's expand the frame. What's outside this picture, right? And they said, well, there's, there's an audience watching. Okay, well, who's the audience? That's the American people. What are they doing? Well, they're screaming. They're screaming. Please, God, get something done. Cross the finish line. Play out this whole scene. What happened before? Were they always a snail? Are, you know, is something going to change that can make them go faster? You know, where are the Republicans in this image? So you sort of understand the whole interrelated idea of it. And you're able to get a, a, a much richer picture. So it's one person bringing in the metaphor, but it's a group discussion that these different objects, images It's a one-on-one provoke. discussion. It's a one-on-one? It's a one-on-one. It's a one-on-one. So how can you learn that much from one person about the country, about the party? Well, you talk to a lot of people. You spend yeah. a lot of time talking to a lot of one-on-one conversation. A lot of one-on-one. It's a very, uh, it's intensive work. But the good news is, you know, you don't need to study hundreds of people. You know, the research has shown you can talk to eight to ten people in a segment and be good to go and have a good sense of what's going on. I know that sounds nuts, but it's validated. And then you you pull as many concepts. It's, it's a stunning amount of information that you're able to pull from people because you're working on a very deep level. You're not going like, tell me about your childhood. And this one thing, you're looking for those deeper stories. Like, you know, I believe truth is innate, inherited, or you make it up or, or whatever. Like you're looking for those deeper core ideas that you can apply more broadly. And then what we're doing, you know, future majority is we're also, you know, running surveys, we're running polls every single week. And so we're using that to feed into it and validating it as well. Okay. So let me understand then you, so you start to do this work with metaphorical images. How do you find actual employment in the space? Isn't that weird? Doing this? Yes. Like, like <laughs> what was the connection there? How did you end up having people listen to you. <laughs> I know, right? Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because I'd done a study uh, on my maternity leave, actually, um, on young voters. I did it in uh, spring 2018. I put together a voter on how young voters might be motivated to turn out to vote. And I found some interesting things, some things that I thought were actually really interesting. Because instead of, you know, it, it spoke to this idea that young voters, um, are highly motivated by this um, notion of, of the hopeful rebel. Um, it, people were bringing in images of Katniss Everdeen and Star Wars and um, Rocky and talking about, you know, uh, when I vote, I feel like I'm, you know, connected with other people and I'm the underdog and I may fail, I may die in the fight, but like, at least I try. And I thought that was really interesting. And I reflected on 
you know, bigger stories about like, how do you get people to do big things, right? I don't think I ever say this in the right way. So I'm just going to try my best. But um, one of the things that I'd been studying was terrorism. And um, the thought I had was, how do you get people to blow themselves up, which is freaking awful, right? How, how do people do that? And But they were working with the same idea of the hopeful rebel. Like, I'm going against the system. I may die in the process. I'm connected to the invisible legion of people. And someday this thing will transform the system. And I thought, well, voting is a lot easier than blowing yourself up. I'm sorry, I'm making light of this. I don't mean to make light of it. It's a horrible thing. But I don't think you're making light of it. Yeah. I just... I just thought, like, if you can understand the extreme, right, maybe you can get people to mail in a ballot, you know. And I noticed that there there was a re- real heat there. There was really some potential. And so what I started to do uh, 2019, 2020 is I would tug on everyone's ear uh, who would listen to me, everybody. And I said, look, I've got this. I've got the study. I think you should listen. I think it's important. You know, young voters, we got to change it. We can't just say like, get out the vote. We got to do something. When you say everyone's ear, whose ear are you tugging on? Uh, the AFL-CIO, um, Tom Steyer's people, Next Gen, anybody and everybody I could. And, you know, I would say, do you know anybody that might benefit from this? Please introduce me. And um, I started to become part of like the research community. And again, in the chat, I was like, I've got this study, guys. And I got better along the way because people, you know, were saying like, well, how do you, you know, how do you get this Star Wars idea to like, actually, how do you action on this? Like, do we just dress up as Princess Leia and tell people to vote? Like, what do we do? You know, I mean. Might work. Right, right, (laughs) right. And so, but what happened was I was spending time with some PACs along the way, talking to them. And then I got introduced to to Mark Riddle, a future majority. And I shared it with him and bless his heart. He thought it was, he thought it was great and really pushed things along and, and moved me forward. And then I, you know, I continued to share it like a maniac with everybody. Um, and we used it a lot in 2020. It was used. Um, there was the Avengers video that came out. It was used for a lot of uh, youth outreach and media, which was really exciting and cool. And around, you know, Winter 2020, early 2021, uh, we had a conversation and I got hired as the research director because it was all I wanted to do. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I know I know Mark Riddle a tiny bit. He's been a guest on this podcast. He used to um, run, what, New Leaders Council when I talked to him. He's a longtime political guy. How do you think he saw what you put in front of him? Well, I will remember when I, I sent, I shared it with him. I mean, we had 15 minutes and I'm always highly caffeinated. So like, that was fine. I went through a little study and I remember him blasting. Naturally it. caffeinated. I... And then some, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I remember him, he, he sent out a note and he said, thank God, not another poll. He was like, this is, this is brilliant. And then he used it. And I think that was honestly the biggest compliment ever because he used it to do what? To create ads and, 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 and he would send it to me and say, is this how we did it? You know, did we, did we hit it right? Did we, you know, change it? I mean, they were coming up with the ads, but a lot of it was based in the idea. And it was a huge gift that he saw it and he saw the potential of it because for a long time I was sharing it with people 
who kind of were like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> you know, not grabbing it. And I was like, no, guys, please, this is a game changer. And so he really took a chance on me and the work that I was doing. And I was, I was really grateful to it. I think he's a wonderful person. Yeah. What is future majority? So future majority is a, it's, it's honestly, in terms of it's, if, if for all working, what we do every day, we research, we do a lot of research every day. Uh, we do polls, we do ethnographies, we do metaphor licitation, and we share it to support, you know, good causes on the left. We share it with a larger research community. We partner with a lot of other organizations, um, research tables on the state level, other PACs. We're really into collaboration and partnership. I think we all learned after 2016, and I guess we've all been learning on an ongoing basis, is that we really need to collaborate and work together and put our minds together and get smarter as, as you know, and, and learn from each other. So that's what we've been doing. You know, we're doing a partnership right now with Way to Win. Uh, this other wonderful crew. And we are, you know, looking at a lot of states and understanding what's happening there. That's what we're about. And, you know, also drinking a lot of caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) How many people work at Future Majority? I'm literally counting them in my head right now. (laughs) I think four or five of us, I think. Yeah. So it's a small group of highly motivated people. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people are researchers also? Or are um, you the collaborators, you know, so we have, yeah. you know, people that work on comms and putting things out. You use also like work from academia r- research that's going on outside of the org. Absolutely. We want to talk to whoever we can get insights from or get smarter about, you know, we were talking to someone from academia the other day who works in misinformation. I work with an anthropologist on my team on the day to day to just kind of see, because, you know, we all have blind spots and we're trying to get smarter just about everything. What evidence is there that what you're doing has impact, that it's improving the ads that are made? We're in a culture now of like how much art, how much science it's complicated politics. It can't be one or the other. It it has to involve, I think, some human insight and some data, uh, both. Tell me about what you're seeing as far as you try something, this is how, why we know it works or doesn't. Well, we rigorously test everything. So before we're ever going to make a recommendation, we're pretty damn sure, you know, as much as we can be, that it's a good one. And then we're constantly questioning ourselves as well. One of the things that I really appreciate about, you know, the team is that we're willing to be wrong and say like, okay, actually it's not white people or it's not black people it's or whatever it is. We're willing to, to, to switch things up based on the, the newest evidence and, and, and to learn. So what are some recommendations that you have made? Give me an example or two. Well, one of the things that I think is really critical, and I don't think it's been fully embraced yet, but. I hope that this happens, is we see Americans recast as the hero of the story. I think that that's absolutely important. A lot of the political advertising that we're seeing out there right now says, you know, the Biden administration is doing some great things, which they are, or these other guys are really awful. Republicans are terrible, you know, and those things are both objectively true, but Americans really need to see their role in all of it. I think as I talk to more and more Americans, I get the sense that 
They don't feel engaged. They don't feel involved. They don't necessarily see what the administration has done. They don't see the positive effects of the current administration or the full-out negative effects of the past administration. And they really need to be engaged in the way that they have, you know, a role in the story and that they're the hero once again. So it's a story about not just like Biden administration took us out of COVID. It's all of the American people. We banded together. And we did this together and we're moving forward together. I think that's a really critical story that we need to see happening. I've seen a variety of different examples of people saying that stories are more persuasive. It's very plausible, right? Tell me about your thinking around story and its application. Well, we've seen this in the research. That's, it suggests that, that stories are always, are always more persuasive than any other data point that that exists. You know, I used to hang out with a neuroscientist when I was at Cornell. One of the things he always told me was, you know, when you're younger, part of your brain is different as a kid. It's juicier. That's not the technical term, but it's juicier. And so you're able to learn like five different languages. And I would say, okay, can we, can we like inject our brains with something so that we can become like kids again? Because that would be cool. Cause I want to learn five languages and that seems hard to me. You can't inject your brain. That said, however, though, There is something that happens in your brain when you're listening to a story and you think about like a kid sitting at the foot of like their parents, like taking it all in. There is something that happens chemically in the brain where you are more open and receptive to the ideas that are shared with you. And I've seen this baked on in the truth study, right? People watch the news. They may not trust as much what a scientist is saying, but if it is a personal interest story, someone is sharing their personal experience they believe it to be true. And I think that that's just something that we really need to capitalize on and use. It feels like the conspiracy theorists have this down. Everything is part of the story that they're telling. QAnon, the stop the steal story, right? Like you can't falsify, was this a fair and free election for some reason? Oh, right. Right? Mm-hmm. right? I mean, Do you think that that is like the flip side of using story to persuade or is it a bad example? I mean, it's not a bad example. I think what it's, it's doing is it's capitalizing on how the brain works. You know, what, what QAnon does so freaking well. One of the things I've studied is like how do cults work and how do you make like things culty? You know, it's like shiny, but like a little bit more problematic. And the way that you make things culty is that you make them secret you make them special, you make them scarce, and you add gamification. And those are all things that you see with QAnon. You see a sense of secrecy like, shh, no one knows this thing, but let me tell you about blah, blah, blah. That is like crack to your brain. Special, you make it special. Like, look, you're part of this thing. The sacred mission is, you know, you're going to be part of it, whether it's like Pizza Gate. I don't remember. That's six blocks from my house, by the way. Holy they, oh my goodness. I mean, Comet Pizza, where they, where the theory was that they were, I don't know, molesting children in the basement or something. Even a guy setting out to prove that it's true can't prove that it's false to some people. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. But see, you there you got it. You've got a secret thing. You've got something that's special. It's a sacred cause. Again, crack for the brain. I alone can do this special thing and I'm going to take this down. Very important. Um, scarcity, right? This information is only for the few. 
again, crack for the brain and gamification. Like, I'm going to put you on a treasure hunt. You're going to find it. I mean, corporate America uses this all the damn time, all the damn time when it's used all together um, around a conspiracy theory or anything at all. I mean, you can use this for good, too. You know, anyone who listens to this very special secret podcast <laughs> can will be invited to play a game <laughs> and save the world. But not, but it's only going to be a very small number of people, and we're going to save the world together. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's it. I got to work on that. I've blown the whole marketing theory it's of done of this. It's done. You know? You've got it. Now you can elect anyone as president. That this is the whole game. So it sounds <laughs> like you enjoy your work. I love true? it. I, yeah. it's, it's like crack for me. I think, I think it's, I just have the best job in the world. I cannot believe that I'm so privileged and lucky. It's what I've wanted to do my entire life. And at this moment in history, I mean, tell me what you're working on at this moment. Yeah. So right now I'm doing analysis for a deep dive into Pennsylvania. Um, we are studying um, people in Allegheny and Philadelphia, sort of democratic strongholds for the state, but we're also studying people in small college towns, people that live within five miles of colleges and universities in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has a lot of colleges and universities, and they've been historically under uh, attended. Um, and so we're trying to understand, you know, the larger themes that we're seeing in the state and how to speak to people. So that's one we're doing. Um, well, just to stop on that for a second, yeah. what are you learning? So much, <laughs> so much. Um, I mean, I think, you know, some things that, you know, I've been seeing from state to state, you know, Republicans are associated with a lot of chaos and corruption and self-dealing. Democrats are associated with, you know, holding hands and taking care of each other. And that's our bread and butter. We expected to see that. I think some things that um, I didn't expect to see, um, especially as someone that lives in Pennsylvania, um, there's a sense of calcification in the state. People sometimes talk about it, you know, when they talk about like redlining, you know, this has been in place forever. This system has been in place. I was born into it and it's gotten crusty and it's, and I feel stuck. Um, but also, you know, gerrymandering also just a slow moving state where people tend to live here forever and they don't move. There's not a lot of movement politically and there's a desire for things to move forward. I think it's only exacerbated by what's happening on a federal level. I'm seeing this across the country too. You know, just this idea of like, let's please move forward now it is time. It is time to deliver. There's also um, just kind of fun stuff. We're seeing some things with uh, Governor Wolf. He's considered to be sort of a kindly father figure. I've never heard so many people in their life saying like, he wants what's best for me. He wants me to succeed. He just, he just cares about people like me. He's really loved by a lot of the people that we studied um, in our, You're in the democratic parts of the state. Yeah, we're in the democratic parts, but we're also in the independent parts. I mean, we're only going as far as moderate conservatives. So we're not talking to like far right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of goodwill. He's not running for reelection. So that's, you know, but, but he, he does, you know, so, you know, some fun tidbits, there's going to be a lot more coming out as we continue to process through. We just finished field work for the study on how, you know, it's true, which is really exciting and interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but, um, studying people who were converts and loyalists, people who were, you know, once former cult members and are now out people from evangelicals now out people who were once conservative and now are very liberal or vice versa. And it is blowing my mind. I think the thing that has really struck me, 
people define truth so differently across the United States. People get to truth in a lot of different ways. Um, some ways that are good, some ways that are super crazy. A lot of people see Google as their friend and someone that they can just sort of shut their brain off. Some people are sort of cross-checking and saying, if I look at the first thing and then I go three pages deep, I'm going to be fine, which is a little weird. But you know, people are trying their best to navigate what's true, but we don't necessarily have a cohesive skill set. I think the thing that really struck me was this notion of empathy and interdependence that came up, that we need each other as humans and we need to have a sense of like love and care for each other in order to get to the full truth of anything. If we approach getting to what's true with a strong negative bias and like a sense of like hate or I'm going this alone, you know, my secret special thing, we'll never get to what's true. And I think what that highlighted for me was just this notion that you know, there is a path forward in terms of bringing our country together, that we have to work together as a, as a country. And we have to at least have some level of kindness in our hearts for each other if we're going to if we're going to make it. You talked about when you believed in the sort of evangelical worldview that it was based in this helping people doing good sort of aspect, which I think carries directly forward to your current work, right? And it's got to provide you a lot of tools for understanding the other side because you've been one of them in a certain sense, maybe not exactly like the craziest ones. One of the things that I've struggled with since Trump came around, I guess, is like how little our side gets why he's appealing or what he does to get people to follow him. Can you talk about how you understand that? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's so weird because you never lose your wiring as a kid. You know, you never completely lose it. There's a thing I read in the book once that like, you can have like highways of meaning and the only thing you can do, you can't destroy highways. You can only build on top of them new ways of thinking about the thing. So I do remember when Trump was running for office as a former evangelical, I saw what he was selling and parts of me lit up and that freaked me out because I could see also like this guy's really harmful and this is really bad. I think what, what um, Trump speaks to, you take away all of the misogyny, you take away all the racism, you take away all the sexism, you take away all of the crap. So take away all the negative stuff, right? What Trump is speaking to is this idea of, I, I see you, you matter. I'm going to make you money, which is huge. I'm going to take care of you um, and you will be fine. In the world that the Trump voter lives in, you know, they're seeing their world changing so rapidly they're seeing the world change so rapidly and it's scary. Um, and, and some of the things they should be scared about, right? Like robots taking their jobs, terrifying for a lot of people. Democrats are associated with technology. Uh, Republicans are saying, no, 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 screw the technology. We'll go back to like all the things that we know. They hear jobs, they hear America first. 
And they think, yeah, I mean, they think, think about the jobs that have been shipped overseas. People don't always think, you know, on a global level or a federal level, like, oh, no, this is what Trump is doing to other people. They're just they're looking at, you know, putting food on the table. They're looking at their job. And, you know, is there racism in there? Is there misogyny in there? Sure, it's there. Um, but I don't know if it's there in the way that I think, you know, we always think it to be. So well, you start out by saying parts of you lit up. Well, there was something very powerful about that notion that like, like a siren call. It's, it's like you resonated to certain aspects of the message. And there's something about that, like he keyed in on something successfully, a number of things successfully, even in you, right? Now a researcher for his opponents. Can you identify like a phrase? I know that there is sort of in the evangelical world, this prosperity notion like God and prosperity. And that's like, that's a huge thing. Right. And here's a guy who golden bosses every toilet near him and, uh, you know, puts his name huge on big buildings and claims to be very wealthy and has all the trappings of success around him, like flagrantly, like, you know, conspicuous consumption used to be something that we were horrified by this guy is that personified, right? Right, right. But, but so that would be one thing that I would hazard a guess at, but what, what else do you see? I think that that's right. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and with someone who has more money than you and they take you out to eat and they're like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to order off the menu. I just, just you sit there and just, I'll take care of this. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And, then, and it resulted in, in frog and ostrich <laughs> and an inedibly small bird. And I, I almost ran screaming away, but that's this probably why not you a never good vote example. for Donald Trump. And this, this is why <laughs> that might be it's actually a screening question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there, there is something about Donald Trump that said, I will take care of you. I will take care of this. This father figure. That's an old authoritarian move, right? It, it is. And you know what? The world is crazy. So I, mm. I mean, I get it. I get you want a strong man. You want somebody to protect the family. Mm-hmm. 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 I want to, sh- and I remember, and this, this is something that I have to say was like, but I remember when he talked about, I remember when he talked about immigration and I had heard, I mean, I heard, you hear stuff, right? I had heard, you know, there are wonderful people crossing the border and then there are not wonderful people crossing the border. And I remember hearing him like, you know, I'll shut down the, the border I remember thinking maybe that will make any bad person not come in and and maybe that's good. And then I went, no, 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 we're not doing that. But, you know, for people who are, are fearful of it, the idea of money going elsewhere, I mean, we're near West Virginia, we drive through all the time. Holy God, you know, that place needs a lot of help. It needs a lot of infrastructure support. And when you see that and someone says, hey, I'm going to give money to you and not to this foreign country that you don't care about, that you'll never be able to afford to visit. We're, we're giving too much money to NATO. We're, we're not Anything. keeping it home. You know, you're working at McDonald's. I I mean, I, yeah, I get it. I mean, look, there are people that I talk to that I interview who are like, 
I swear to God, they went to the Capitol and stormed the Capitol sometimes, you know, I talk to people and then I'm like, Oh God, no, no, I don't, I don't feel like my, my heart is kind of closing off to you. But there are a lot of people that are really hurting out there. And that's why I really think it's, it's so important that, you know, this administration continues to do and does things that make a meaningful difference in people's lives. I am really hopeful that we see bills pass soon. Um, for that reason. It's a struggle. It is such a struggle. What is your advice to this administration, to the Democratic Party on this sort of broader messaging? If he's lighting up parts of our electorate with his pitch, how do we combat that? Yeah. We need to talk about American jobs big time. Jobs are more important to Americans than even I, I can I can articulate. Jobs are life and death for people in a, in a huge way. It's a problem. We should all go ther- to therapy. But American jobs and the, the idea of it and the actuality of it are, are critically important. So, um, you know, emphasizing that I think is really important. Um, making Americans the hero of the story, absolutely important. The need for agency, giving people a sense of agency into the future, giving them a sense of momentum that we're moving forward is, is critical. I didn't tell you this earlier, but um, if I can, really realizing how urgent the situation is. One of the things that I see a lot when you talk to Americans about the state of, of you know America today and where they're going, they bring a lot of pictures of people drowning. And I don't know if everyone knows that Americans are drowning, that they feel like they're not able to get a hand up, that they're not able to swim. They want to be able to do it. They want to do it without government support, but they're really struggling. And, you know, I remember this one woman I talked to, and this is a mixed metaphor here, but she was talking about how America feels to her. And she says, I feel like I'm on the bottom of a pit and there's a ladder. And every time I put my foot on a rung of the ladder, the rung collapses under my, my feet. And that's like another school shooting or another thing that goes wrong, another thing. And I feel utterly helpless to, to get, I want to get out, but I can't. And the government's not facilitating that, you know, getting things done for me and delivering. So, you know, I think that those things are really important, you know, making Americans a hero, giving Americans a sense of agency and momentum, recognizing that Americans are drowning and then uh, just delivering, please needs to happen. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? Oh, you asked a lot of good questions. That's a lot of good questions. I think this was great. I can't think of anything. Candidly, I can't. I can't. Thank you. Well, it's interesting to talk to you. It's I hadn't thought about other ways of sort of going deeper and getting public opinion and thinking about how to apply that in a storytelling way. And it makes some sense. So I appreciate you being willing to share that. And uh, is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> no, just thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this and getting to know you. It was real fun. That was Gretchen Barton. She's at futuremajority.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.